in a hallway where love's never been. A Magnus Archive fan fiction written by Thought and read by God of Laundry Baskets. It is rated teen and up. It's just this. Georgie Barker looks at Jonathan Sims across the table in their favorite cafe one rainy January morning, and instead of saying, I don't think this is going to work, she says, I think we should take a break. When she says it, she's trying to be kind. She means, I don't think this is going to work, but John is huddled in one of her jumpers with his chin tucked down like some sort of burrowing creature. His hands around his paper cup are shaking very slightly, and he's gone all blank and distant, like nothing can touch him. And it's not like she can turn off caring about a person, so she tries to be kind, ease him into it. In one world... She ends things there and then, and neither of them speak, beyond the required logistics of separating one life into two for eight years. In one world, two proud people who have been conditioned to equate any error in judgment with a fundamental flaw in their very being walk away from each other and refuse to look back. But in this world... Their break lasts two weeks before they both realize that the weight lifted from their shoulder is not worth the hollowness in their stomachs or the absence of stability that comes from being known. John's grandmother may know the sound of his parents' voices, but she does not know his dress size or his favorite brand of cigarettes. Georgie's friends may know her class schedule and her cat's name, but they don't know her favorite Star Trek captain, or the ever-present ache in her knee from a basketball injury from when she was twelve. "'Well,' says John, "'we've had our break.' "'Yes,' says Georgie. "'Good thing, too. Nothing wrong with a bit of time to clear our heads.' "'Definitely.' says John. Glad we could both be reasonable about it all. John settles back in their flat like he'd never left, coffee so strong it makes her sick in the mornings, and careful, cold hands, tugging her tie straight before she goes out. The familiar smell of cigarettes and ink that clings to everything he wears. She never asks where he'd gone for those two weeks, he never tells her. They adopt a cat the day after their break is over, and curled up on their shitty mattress under a pile of blankets with John's head on her shoulder and the Admiral purring furiously against her neck, Georgie feels, for the first time, like she is exactly where she wants to be. They still fight, if you can call it that. Of course they do quiet and bitterly passive-aggressive, because John has always known that to draw attention to himself is to invite shame and ridicule, and Georgie has been told her entire life that she needs to be quieter, softer, smaller. Somewhere, 
Gerard Key draws attention to himself and is shoved into a rapidly expanding sinkhole to see if feeding it will make it close back up. Somewhere else, Melanie King is loud and sharp and uncompromising and winds up with a broken jaw and three bruised ribs in the alley behind a Tesco at 4 a.m., but that's not important right now. John and Georgie have never needed to learn by doing. Time passes, naturally. John finds he is actually very good at research and writing when it's something he's interested in. Georgie finds more and more people who like her without any caveats, without any performances. The external world begins to validate them, and each night when they come in the door, they bring less desperate, snarling animal of childhood with them. They grow up and grow together, and what once was kindling, they use to build lifeboats. Maybe they're a little kinder for not constantly being in survival mode. Maybe they're a little crueler for having someone to fall back on. Maybe John smiles at Sasha the first time she offers to help him with a research project instead of taking it as a critique of his abilities. Maybe he's sharper in his criticism of Martin when he's spent an hour texting Georgie his frustrations and receiving a steady stream of sympathetic irritation and validation. Maybe none of this really matters in the long run. Very few butterflies truly cause tornadoes. Maybe on her first day in London, Georgie almost trips over a guy sitting on the sidewalk outside their new flat, the flat they can only afford on two salaries, hands pressed to its temples. John would have glared and went on his way. Georgie asks if the man is all right. He's not but neither of them know it at the time. But the next time Gerard Key is in A&E for an injury he can't treat on his own, and the nurse asks if he has any other concerns, he remembers the random woman who had almost fallen over him, and he remembers, that doesn't really seem normal, mate. You might want to see a doctor, yeah? And maybe he mentions the pseudo-blackouts and the headaches and the memory issues. Maybe, in a kinder world, the doctors find Gerard's cancer in time. When John gets promoted to head archivist, he knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows he is prickly and condescending and unnecessarily distant. He knows that the dismissive skepticism with which he dissects each statement is likely undeserved, but he has been thrust into a position in which he must convince everyone he belongs. He has to be a professional. Friendship is not professional, no matter how awkward it is to reject offers for lunch or drinks or coffee runs that he would have accepted at least half the time in the past. Believing in the supernatural is not professional, even if he and Georgie have both experienced it, and he spends many evenings researching stories for what the ghost that have no credible explanation. He wears suits and ties like ill-fitting heavy armor, 
stifling, and wrong, but the only practical defense against injury. Melanie and John meet just as she's leaving the flat and he's entering, and it is a perfectly unremarkable, perfectly civil meeting. John doesn't particularly like her show, but he can respect the amount of work that goes into it. And if Georgie is on friendly terms with her, then he's got no reason to be otherwise. He may play the skeptic at work, but he's sat through two loud parties and cramped road trips and endless editing sessions with what feels like all of the UK's supernatural media creators at one point or another, because Georgie wrote Networking on her very first business plan for the podcast, and underlined it with a grim sort of determination. Melanie comes in to make her statement, and John is professionally friendly, and he leaves the door open while he hunts down the business cards with his direct line in case she remembers anything else. Sorry about him, he hears Tim murmur to Melanie, clearly assuming John's out of earshot or distracted. Honestly, he wouldn't believe in a ghost if one punched him in the face. What? John? I doubt it. Wasn't he one of the ones who took that fucking school bus up to the middle of nowhere lake country? I swear I remember him and Georgie talking about the fucking demon sheep when they were hammered at one of the award shows after parties. Which is how John's assistants start to suspect that he is not, in fact, a workaholic robot with no life. It's terrible. So, how do you know Melanie? Sasha asks, in what she likely thinks is a casual tone. I wouldn't go so far as to say I know her, John says coolly. I know why you don't come to the pub with us, Tim says. We're just not high-profile enough. I assure you, that's not the reason. Martin doesn't say anything. But then, John has text messages from Martin's number that he never sent, so he supposes the ship has rather sailed on convincing Martin of his disbelief. He tells Georgie everything. He needs an objective viewpoint one not constantly infected by the creeping, insidious fear that grips him each time he thinks about the Institute, even when Elias reminds him about the NDAs and the code of conduct he'd sign when he first started, as if Elias knows, somehow, that John is rambling everything out each night, like leaving a backup copy of a hard drive in a locked box. It's because he tells her everything, that she's not surprised when he calls her to pick him up after the fucking wormpocalypse, which is good, because everyone else is plenty surprised enough. Tim has just got out of quarantine when she gets there, and the rest of them are standing around awkwardly, still a little numb from shock, but silently agreed. They need to see Tim cleared and all right before they can leave. Christ, John, 
Georgie says, touching his chin carefully to tilt his face into the light of a street lamp. The bandages pull, and he winces. Yes, he says. It certainly has been a day. Did he record it? She asks, and probably someone else would look guilty for asking. Probably someone else would feel resentful for being asked. Parts, John says. We can go through what I have at home. Hi, says Tim pointedly. I'm Tim. This is Sasha Martin. I'd tried to guess who you are, but John's never mentioned you. Georgie rolls her eyes. John elbows her in the side. I'm trying to be professional, he mutters. Are you saying I'm not safe for work, John? I've changed my mind. I'll just go sleep in my office with the worm corpses. Georgie introduces herself, friendly and engaging, and easy like she always is when she's working. John stays quiet and tries not to throw up from the painkillers and the pain they aren't killing, and also the image of the fucking worms, the memory of the soft give of the wall just before they rushed out, the way they burrowed under his skin like his body was a rotting apple, something already discarded and unwanted, just soft flesh waiting to serve a new purpose than one it was meant for. I need to leave, he says as quietly as he can manage. He can't feel his legs, and every time he moves his tongue inside his mouth, it is wet and soft and squishes with an awful sound. Georgie doesn't hesitate. Her hand on the small of his back is almost too much stimulation, but he knows without it he'd just float out of his body entirely. It's not until they're halfway home that John thinks to mention the dead body. Weeks later... When his paranoia is almost crippling, Georgie grabs his wrist and makes him sit down on the sofa, crouching on the hardwood in front of him and holding his wrist firmly. Jonathan, she says, you cannot stalk your direct reports because you think they're planning to murder you. I don't see why not. She blows a breath between her teeth. Because that is how you get arrested. Give me a couple of days to talk to some people, and I'll find you a hacker so you can invade their online privacy, like any self-respecting millennial. A few days after that, Michael traps Helen Richardson in its corridors, and then decides to pay John a visit at work. John might have been frightened, or confused, or angry, if he hadn't had to put up with the Georgie's constant theories about what Michael might be, and if it has a crush on Sasha, or just wants to lull her into a false sense of security. It's gotten bad enough that every time Georgie loses her keys, or sees one of those optical illusions on the internet, or notices a door painted yellow, she'll call out, Hi, Michael! Like it's some sort of meme that only she and John understand. Hi, Michael, John says, before his brain can catch up with his mouth. Michael stops, as much as something that is constantly something else can 
Stop. Hi, Archivist. It says, and if John were to think it could express emotion, he would call it bemused. Shall I get Sasha for you? That's likely a more difficult offer than you think. <laughs> Besides, Archivist, I've come to talk to you. <laughs> hmm, says John. What? Is the world ending? Am I the only one who can stop it? Am I your only hope? Georgie made him watch Star Wars. It was not a particularly enjoyable experience, but he's tired and can't find the energy to properly interrogate Michael. Michael is behind him, and then he is the window, reflected in a hundred fragmented pieces, then he's sitting in the same chair Helen had been sitting in not five minutes before. You're not the only one, he says, but you've got a good chance. Also, I have someone you should meet. I'd rather not, John says. I'd rather not plenty of things, Michael says. Or... Maybe that's past tense. It's hard to say, but it seems only fair. One of mine for one of yours. What? Michael drops something on his desk, then it is back at the door. The wrong door. John blinks furiously, and in the time it takes to open his eyes again, Michael and the door are gone. He looks at the thing on his desk. It's a torn-out page of a pizza takeaway menu dated January 2029, and there's a phone number scrawled across the back. John doesn't realize anything unusual about Helen's departure from his office until she steps out of a yellow door and isn't Helen. He's never sure if it had been the moment she left his office when she'd been taken, but Michael's words come back to him, and he thinks it was one of mine or one of yours. Do you know what the fucking time is? says the person on the other end of the phone. No says John, fumbling with the pack of cigarettes in his pocket and realizing it's empty. He can see Georgie through the balcony doors, hunched over a laptop at the kitchen table, with giant headphones over her ears, and John had only stepped outside to have a smoke, though the collection of butts in his empty coffee mug tell a different story. Who the fuck is this? the voice asks. My name is Jonathan Sims, he says. A colleague gave me your number, and I'm not certain why. Thanks, says the voice. I hate it. The line goes dead. John calls back immediately. Don't hang up, he says. Literally get fucked, says the other person. Who are you? John asks. Gerard Key, he says. 
And if you do that to me again, I'll fucking kill you myself. Call back at a decent hour, and maybe we can talk. Once I've had my coffee, and my spot of murdering an avatar of the spiral. You know, the important morning rituals. This is not what John was expecting, so he doesn't react quickly enough to Gerard Key from hanging up on him a second time. That's fine. He's got permission to call back. He stumbles into the flat and pulls the headphones right off Georgie's head, which earns him a thoroughly deserved growl. Guess who I just spoke to, he says. No, she says. He might be a ghost, if that helps, John says. Georgie slumps it down onto the table. I'm listening. She is not excited at the prospect of communicating with Gerard Key as John thinks she should be, but she is at least curious enough to accompany him when he goes to meet Key at the Costa by the Institute. John's wearing a denim shirt and thick leggings under a WTG shirt, and a warm black raincoat that neither he or Georgie remember buying. He suspects Key's associations with the Institute aren't good ones, but perhaps the more he can distance himself from his position there, the better his relationship with him will be. Georgie says, Do you want to bring a notebook so you can doodle hearts and write Jonathan Key in the margins? Don't be ridiculous, he says. His mother was physically and emotionally abusive. I suspect he'd want to take my last name to distance himself from her. As it turns out, Gerard Delano Niki has a complicated relationship with the Institute, is a positive encyclopedia of useful information, and flirts with both of them like it's his job. John is smitten. Georgie is reluctantly charmed. I'd ask you out, Gerard says to John, the third time they meet. But you're the archivist. I've always said I won't get in bed with any of the entities, and I mean that literally, too. Rude, Georgie says, because John is blue-screaming. Look, I'm sorry, but I have some very hard limits. It takes a month for those limits to go out the window. It's Helen who rescues John from Nicola, and she does it after only four days. My girlfriend's girlfriend said I had to, she said, deliberately studying her fingernails. John looks, too, and regrets it. Which is fine. Not as if I have anything better to do than rescue helpless archivists from aggressive skin care routines. What do you have to do that's better? John asks, morbidly curious. Negotiating tenancy agreements, she says. Michael says hi, incidentally. (laughs) 
He steps into a door, and then he steps out of a door, and he's in his flat. Georgie and Melanie squished together on the floor between the bed and the wardrobe, Melanie looking vaguely panicked, while Georgie is very deliberately choosing not to cry. John's very familiar with the expression. Special delivery, says Helen. Shipping and handling is free, but only on your first order. Georgie makes a broken noise and crosses the room to John, patting him down like she's expecting to find him bleeding from some hidden injury. I'm fine, he says, which is a lie. Those are my ribs. Jesus Christ. Yes, congratulations. You've confirmed that they're bruised. I fucking hate you she says, still not crying. I know, he says, and shoves his face into the space between her neck and shoulder so he doesn't have to deal with the world anymore. You smell like lavender, she says after a long minute. My skin has never been so hydrated, he says, not lifting his head. Oh, she says. Good. Great. That's... What the fuck, Jonathan? So, we'll just... go? Melanie says. Well done not being dead, archivist. John doesn't respond. Helen's door creaks when it opens, and creaks again when it shuts. He can hear a steady clicking near his left ear. Really? You're texting someone? He says, put out. I've been traumatized, Georgina. I'm texting Gary, she says. People tend to be upset when they find out you've been kidnapped. It seems only polite to let him know you're back. Hmm, says John, who is not used to anyone but Georgie, caring about anything that happens to him. They migrate to the sofa, and Georgie makes coffee because John isn't sure of much, but he is 100% sure he does not want to sleep anytime soon. Jerry arrives at the same time coffee finishes, because caffeine summons him like some sort of ritual sacrifice. Good news, he says as soon as he enters. Yes, says Georgie. John's not dead. Well, obviously, that's good news, but we live in the world of 24-hour news cycle, Georgie. Keep up. I've got something new, hot off the press. Go on, then, she says. I know the secret to ending your employment contract with the Institute. I'm already worried, says John dryly. What do we have to do? Stab our eyes out? Georgie makes a face. Jerry says, Well, I mean, stabbing seems a bit dramatic. John says, I've never put vodka in coffee before, and I'm not sure if it will be awful, but I guess we're going to fucking find out. <laughs> Author's notes at the end. 
Jerry, banging on his closet door. Michael, why the fuck did you give my number to the new archivist? Michael, I can't hear you. You're breaking up. I'm a tunnel. <laughs> also, double dates with Helen, Melanie, and Michael, Sasha. No, I will not be taking constructive criticism at this time. All of it very well said. <laughs> this is a delightful little story. I love it so much. I love this one up. What a beautiful, happier story. And Gerard gets to leave. And Gerard gets to live. And Georgie gets to be happy. And so does John, at least some of the time. It's very good. And I love it. Oh, it feels good to be recording Magnus Archive stuff. There's been a bit of a break for me um, recording this stuff. And I got very focused on One Piece again, which happens sometimes when I start watching One Piece. But I also still love the Magnus Archive. <sighs> They're just such good fandoms out there. Also, I'm getting into DS9. I'm sorry, I'm multi-fanish. I'm probably going to be recording some DS9 stuff if I can get permission for it. Well, I'll prob- Um, I'm just so multi-fanish, guys. It's- it pains me more than it pains you. Anyways, thank you for listening. Uh, have a happy afternoon, evening, morning, whatever. Um, time and solution. Lunchtime doubly so. Douglas Adams. <laughs>